Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to the 101st edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Since 101 is usually the designation in college courses for the introduction to a subject, we thought we would take our 101 and apply it to the question, how should Christians defend themselves? Now, this may seem like, why would you bring this up now? Well, we are currently in July of 2020, and there are many areas around the U.S. and the world where civil unrest is rampant. And the question becomes, how do you defend your life? How do you defend your property? What's the appropriate use of firearms? And how does that tie in with what our responsibility is under God to be lawful? So, Steve, welcome. Well, it's good to be with you. And I think the the image that you have in your mind, and one that's been on the news a lot lately, is this married couple uh, inside, I believe it's Kansas City area, and they're standing in front of a mansion. Actually, I think it might be St. Louis. Um, it was St. Louis. St. Louis. And they're standing in front of a, of a, a rather extravagant mansion, which inside has lots of antiques and beautiful art. But on the outside, these two middle-aged white people dressed in reasonably affluent attire are holding firearms, one holding an automatic rifle, probably an AR or something like that. And the woman holding a pistol with her finger very close, if not on the trigger, as a parade or a protest of uh, Black Lives Matters folks are entered into their gated neighborhood and walking past their home. And we get the image from CNN that this is a family, you know, provoking the Black Lives Matter folks. Or we get the image from Fox News that this is a family of brave patriots standing to defend their ground. Um, So it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition with the media, but it also brings up the question of what is the Christian response and what is a Christian supposed to say or think about this type of image? Right. And there's many ways to look at self-defense. Obviously, there's physically defending yourself. But I would submit that there is a need to emotionally defend yourself, spiritually to defend yourself, and ultimately, theologically, to defend yourself. Because if you just are looking at the right to defend yourself, most people don't really argue that. Having a firm foundation underneath that says, okay, we're going to give that as a premise, how do we proceed from there? Right. And I think you're assuming... Um, that most of our listeners are Christian and, of course, take the scripture as their standard. And so they would look to examples, either prescriptive, meaning the Bible says do this, or descriptive of examples of Christians or Old Testament saints who have done certain actions that would justify um, our current behavior. We look to their example or instruction to say, well, this is what the Christian should do. And I think when you begin talking about 
self-defense, a common objection that comes up is, well, did, did Jesus defend himself? We have the story of, of Christ who is subjecting himself to law enforcement, the Roman guard or the, the Jewish uh, officers of the temple. You have Jesus who does not seem to fight back and reproaches uh, St. Peter for striking uh, one of the arresting officers and then submits himself to the court of law, to uh, the punishment, to the lashings, to the humiliation, to being spit on, being hit, and all of these injustices. Jesus continues even to submit himself to the crucifixion and uh, death on the cross. So there is a sense in which we might look at the life of Christ and say, well, if we were going to be Christians, those who are like little Christ's and Jesus didn't defend ourselves, where do we get the authority to say we are to defend ourselves? Aren't we supposed to follow Christ's example? What would you say to somebody who explained that to you? What you're saying is, and what a lot of people say, is that in order to be a true Christian, you need to be a pacifist, that you never resist. Of course, that argument falls apart because if people don't do anything in response to evil, evil triumphs. So I I would venture to say a lot of people understand what they should believe, but they don't necessarily have it worked out how that would look. And I think that you used a word there that's probably pretty common in the last 100 years, but would have been foreign to the early Christians, and that's pacifism. Because the early Christians did not view the crucifixion or the death as a passive act. When Jesus submits himself uh, to the Roman courts or to the Jewish courts or even to the cross, he says that he's there because it's his will. And he even describes to Pontius Pilate this idea of if he wanted, you know, his, his father's will would be done, whether Pontius Pilate would be the governor or whether or not he'd be crucified. But what's missing in a really pacifist translation or understanding of the gospel is that the crucifixion, Christ taking the cross, was an act not only of aggression, but it was an act of victory. It was an act of dominance. It was an an invasion into history. The crucifixion was in no way pacifying. It wasn't Christ passively accepting what this world was going to do, but rather Christ was actively submitting to that cup, that cup of wrath, that act of humiliation that would redeem the world. So Christ taking the crucifixion was not a pacifist act, but rather an act of war against the powers who were mistakenly believing that crucifying him was going to kill him. And so while we could look to the the cross as this act of, of submission, it's really it's really an act of dominion where Christ puts to death the sin of this world and shows and mocks the leaders of this world by his simple obedience to uh, the history of redemption. And so for the Christian today who looks to uh, the scripture and to Christ's example of what does it mean to defend yourself? Well, what does Uh, the resurrection say about the crucifixion. It says that sin has no power, that victory is stronger than defeat, and therefore the parallel we should draw is not to chaining ourselves to crosses or to seeking martyrdom, but rather to living resurrection lives where our 
ideal is to defend what Christ died for. Christ's death is not to be relived or re-celebrated by any of us, but rather we are to live in the power of the resurrection. And so rather than being pacifists who accept defeat or the power of the world, we are resurrection Christians who say the power of the Holy Ghost is greater than anything in this world, and therefore we have to defend what Christ died for. Okay, so what you're saying begs the question, right, if we're not supposed to be pacifists, if we're not supposed to say do whatever we trust that God will take care of us, is it an act of unbelief then pick up some sort of defensive weapon and say, okay, I'm going to stand for righteousness. I'm going to stop this evil. Some would say, if you do that, you don't really trust in God. Mm. Well, to do that is to be ignorant of the instruction that Christ gave to his own disciples, that they should carry the sword. It's often mistaken when Christ admonishes St. Peter, when he says, you know, St. Peter, those who live by the sword die by the sword, that that's somehow him telling St. Peter and us, therefore, as his disciples, not to defend ourselves. But have we forgotten that St. Peter is holding a sword with him while they are praying? Uh, Christ never had an objection to that. In fact, instructed his disciples to carry with them, rather than any other earthly goods, a sword in their tunic. Right? So this is the idea of Christ, that you are to go forward into the world and defend yourself when you must, but what you are living for is so precious that you must defend it. What Christ is willing to die for is so important that every material, spiritual, emotional good must be put forward to protect what Christ has created. So I know that there are a lot of people who will talk about right, for example, of this couple. Interestingly enough, somebody reported that they actually were a Democrat couple. So it was if, if that's true, that their party affiliation was that, obviously they didn't have a problem having the ability to defend themselves when need be. And um, I really do think in that case, it really depends on your presuppositions as to whether or not they'll be heroes or villains. But without an understanding of God's law, and knowing the boundaries that God gives in terms of the application of thou shalt not kill. Now, if in fact thou shalt not kill means that you never engage in warfare at all, you pick up your sword or you pick up your, um, you know, your weapon, Jesus' admonition to his disciples doesn't make any sense. So, what are the parameters that the Christian should look at in terms of am I being faithful in my exercising of self-defense? And is it just about me or does it apply to people who I'm supposed to protect as well? And it really is a matter of perspective. If you believe what Jesus says, sell your tunic and buy a sword, then you have to think of what would Jesus parameters be for using that. And I think it goes back to a really famous quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And I think that's where the Christian idea of self-defense comes from. You know, there's this really 
terrible maligning of Christian history where the Crusades are seen as this aggressive war against uh, noble native peoples. But in reality, Christian history is always about defensive strategies to protect the kingdom. And it really starts, again, with the individual and his family. God created the family, gave the authority of the family to the father, and then, therefore, the responsibility to protect the family to the father. I mean, that's a parallel we see in the Garden of Eden, where Adam is to protect, to guard, to shepherd uh, the Garden of Eden, and therefore protect Eve. But it then carries out into the Christian family. A father has the responsibility to care for the people in his home. It's heartbreaking that some modern Christian pacifist movements, uh, even famous pastors like John Piper, have made comments like that if an intruder broke into their home, they would be pacifist and refuse to shoot that intruder and allow that person to kill them or their wife. And I don't think that's the Christian view. The Christian view is that your family, your home is so important that Christ's call to lay down your life for another is therefore a call to self-defense. As you pointed out in uh, the Ten Commandments, there's this thou shalt not kill. Well, as Dr. Rushdoony explains in the Institutes, every one of the commandments and its negative sanctions therefore affirms personal identity. So if the commandment says thou shalt not steal, then that means that there's a such thing as private property that you can protect and defend. Nobody seems to disagree with that. But when the commandment says, thou shalt not kill, it also implies that human life has value and is worthy to be protected, both by the individual who lives out God's law by protecting his household, but also by the state who puts sanctions and punishments for those who breach that commandment because God says human life is valuable. Let's be clear, the reason human life is valuable because we are made in the image of God. We are God's image bearers. So we acknowledge the fact that we're born in sin. Obviously, in God's economy, mankind was created, yes, and fell, was valuable to him enough that he would take on human flesh and pay the penalty that man could not pay himself. So when we look at this idea of deciding that what we're supposed to do is let people um, hurt us or hurt our loved ones, basically takes away this idea that there are absolute goods, absolute evils, and that basically giving away foundation on which you would stand if you act like it's not worth defending. That's right. And when we talk about the various different kinds of self-defense, there are then responsibilities to enact those self-defense procedures, right? So it's not just uh, about guns, because obviously when the Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel, there were no gunpowder guns, but there still was this principle of protecting yourself. And it wasn't just a home intruder. It was a principle of war. It was a principle of individual restraint. And so as we look at what the categories Andrea mentioned here at the top of the talk is emotional protection. You know, there's a, there's a self-defense here that's very important, not allowing who we are, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, uh, psychologically to be manipulated. 
either by the media or by our neighbors or by our local governments or by misguided church leaders. Uh, we have to protect our emotional well-being so that our self-worth, self-identity, uh, who we think we are is what God says and what God promises, not the fear or the anxieties of the world pushed upon us. I would say before we get into the emotional self-defense, spiritual self-defense, or ultimately theological, we should understand that a lot of people are not empowered because intellectually and educationally, they have lost a foundation. So when the country, by and large, subscribed to biblical principles before they were undermined by the statist education system, people could say, it's wrong to do this, it's wrong to do that. As a matter of fact, most people today couldn't even tell you what the proper response of a woman would be if she was about to be raped. The conventional wisdom is, you know what, just give in. So he might rape you, but if you fight him, he might kill you. So from a biblical perspective, the Bible will call rape and murder both worthy of the death penalty for the perpetrator. So what commandment is a woman adhering to when she defends herself in case of rape? She's adhering to the idea that you shouldn't commit adultery. Either she is someone's wife or she will be someone's wife, and this person is violating something God holds to be a primary beginning of a family unit. So if you don't think you're worth defending, chances are it's because you don't think God's law is worth defending. And this is where a person cannot articulate why they should be able to defend their family or their property. It's because they don't adhere to God's law. In essence, we're saying their faith is something other than a biblical faith. Right. Well, and I think that this idea of, of self-defense and really the idea of being prepared or training goes back to this picture we have of this couple. Because a lot of the commentary has made fun of how they're holding the guns or how they're pointing the guns or the fact that they don't have any training in these guns. And that's true, not just of this strange couple standing outside of their St. Louis home with their automatic rifle and their handgun. But most Christians think they have the Bible, um, but they're not prepared to fire it. They're not prepared to implement it. They're not trained on how to use it. I'm imagining that if somebody uh, of reasonable caliber had actually approached these people, they might have got a sh few shots off, but it's likely that they had those guns out just for show. And it, they could have pointed at somebody and fired, but it's likely they could not have defended themselves against this large crowd of people. And I think that's true for us today. We have the Bible ceremonially in our homes. Uh, we, we read it in our churches as a, a token because we're supposed to read so much scripture. But for the most part, we're unfamiliar with how to apply it into our lives. We need gun training. Uh, there's an old saying that a sword is no good in defense if you're not trained on how to use it. So if the Bible is the sword of the Lord, what have we done to train ourselves to apply that to these various areas of our life. And 
it's not good enough to say, I have the Bible without knowing how to use it. A gun's a complicated thing. You got to go to the course. You got to practice firing. You got to shoot for targets. You got to clean it. You got to do all these things so that on the day you actually need to use it, you have all of this muscle memory, practice, and preparation so that when it fires, it shoots what you intended to fire. But so many of us have not even bothered to clean, to train, to get prepared for how to use this weapon that God gave us. I'm thinking of Paul's um, statement that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting aside all imaginations that present themselves in opposition to Christ. And I don't know that people actually believe that enough that they pray that way. I'm thinking of the parable of the unjust judge and I'm sure our listeners are familiar with it. There's this widow. She keeps coming to the judge. He keeps ignoring her. Finally, he gives her justice. It says he gives her justice, not because he's this big proponent of justice, but he wants her to go away. And so at the end of the parable, Jesus says, if the unjust judge will bring about vengeance against this woman's enemy, how much more will your heavenly father avenge you? So, what do we take away from that parable is we should be like that widow never says that the widow moans and cries and, you know, does a video and tries to get other people to sympathize with her. No, she goes back to the source of justice, the judge, because she wholeheartedly expects what she is requiring and is appropriate for her is justice. How many of us pray that way? We are, not because we have an unjust judge, we have the ultimately just judge, right? Do we have sufficient faith to say God will avenge us of our enemies and then that we actually make use of the weapons of our warfare? Right. Or we, do we even acknowledge that there's, there's a judgment or that there's a battle? There are so many Christians today who refuse to even acknowledge that there's a war in our culture today. They refuse to acknowledge that there are people who are actively trying to undermine and overwhelm the, the Christian faith. And I always go back to a, a quote from Machiavelli, where he, he talks about the ambitions of men. And he says that first man tries to secure himself. And we've seen this over the last 50 years. The, the university has secured itself as an intellectual stronghold. The medical field has intellectually uh, strengthened itself or fortified itself. The federal government continues to gather up strength on its own against the church and against the family. Um, but then Machiavelli says, once they have secured themselves, they're not sufficient. It's not enough for them to just have power themselves. Then they're going to go out and use that ambition to attack others. And so this Machiavellian kind of axiomatic way of thinking is how the world views Christianity. Anytime Christianity loses authority or persuasion or power in the cultural moment, we should expect that that force will now come and attack Christianity, whether it's Disney with their uh, homosexual propaganda, or it's the federal government with their encroachments on our personal liberties. And so self-defense is essential because Christians should expect that those other powers are not just 
happy or sufficient to have their own realm, but they want to dominate Christianity as well. Yes. And by not realizing that, then they are very much able to be manipulated by fear, which we now are into an emotional and spiritual realm. And if you see images of people being beat up, people who kind of look like you being beat up or their property being destroyed, you can become convinced that that's the greatest enemy, thugs, lawless people. If you forget that somebody had to be filming this and somebody had to be then making sure it played, like you said, you've got to ask yourself the question, if we have a systemic problem, the systemic problem is more likely stemming from the state of school system and the universities, the medical profession that does lots of things that are not particularly useful for health, although they might be useful for sickness so that they can profit off sickness. And then, of course, the bureaucracy of statism that wants to manipulate every area of life. So is it not interesting that the Bible says that if you're going to fear anyone, you fear the Lord? Yes. And yeah. we have a, a whole group of people who profess Christ, but they don't really confess him because when the time comes, they're not petitioning the ultimately just judge. They're looking at protection from various other ways, and they think it's going to happen through getting this guy in office or this piece of legislation. I mean, if, e if evil people will disregard God's law, makes anybody think they won't disregard man's law and that's so true and god's law really is the foundation for self-defense there's these ways of describing personal spheres in the old testament talk about the boundary markers or the ancient stones that literally marked out where your family's property was or where your tribe's property was but self-defense is more than just a physical household boundary we talked about spiritual and emotional defense. It's really about just the idea of boundaries or standards in your life. And that's an ethical discussion that God's law has to come and bear on. And it's actually the one thing that's most under attack by modern you know, anti-Christian intellectualism. You hear this word tolerance or acceptance. And all that means is they want to permeate or go through or break down your boundaries. Tolerance is this battering ram that says that your personal boundaries, whether they be your religious convictions or emotional comforts or standards of behavior, need to be taken down so that they can invade your personal or emotional or spiritual space. And so while tolerance or this idea of equality is being seen as a virtue in our days. It's actually this terribly offensive and aggressive strategy used to tear down Christian self-defense, emotional boundaries and spiritual boundaries. And so the Christian must recognize that when homosexual propaganda is put on their TV, that's invading their emotional boundaries. When uh, homosexual propaganda is put into the public school, or when these contrary to God's law standards are forced in their local city or municipal codes, that these are acts of aggression from a force outside of you. And you have a responsibility then to put your guard up, to say, this is my standard, God's law, and this is how I apply it. 
And you need to take it personally that these other forces are not just moving politically or sociologically, but rather are making personal affronts on you and your family. And you have the responsibility as a Christian to rebuild those walls, to fortify them against the battering ram of progressivism, against humanism, and that these boundaries are actually the loving things that will protect not only your emotional well-being, your spiritual well-being, but that of your children, and ultimately protect those who are pushing this agenda from the havoc that they're inviting into their own life. If you don't have your antenna up, or to use another example, like a Geiger counter detecting where there's metal, Things can be slipped under the radar. You don't even know you've accepted it. And I'll give you an example. So if you ever watch some conservatives talking, it's not unlike the course of a conversation where say things like, well, you know, I have a lot of friends who are gay. And then they go on to something else. Okay. So as the Christian who knows God's law, do his ears perk up and say, what did that person just say? The person said, I have a lot of friends who are abortionists, you know, really nice people. I have a lot of friends who are serial killers, really nice people. I have a lot of friends who are rapists, really nice people. You see, when it's slipped in that way, as you pointed out in terms of tolerance, you're not even questioning it. You're not even trying to convince you the rightness or wrongness of something. They just want you to look at it as, famous expression now, the new normal. When you tell somebody a situation that has gone on, instead of being shocked, instead of saying, oh, this is awful, they say, yeah, well, what do you expect? It's been going on that way for a long time because it's been subtle acceptance. Now, to me, you want to look around at the disestablishment of what we're seeing. You know, the one class of human beings who are unable to defend themselves would be infants in the womb. And yet we don't look at that as a self-defense issue that we must, now usually I say a lot of people say we have to protect those, but then why would you ever say, well, I have a lot of friends who are pro-choice. In other words, oh, I see you have a lot of friends who don't care about defending the life, the image bearer of God. So we just got to make sure that we don't get into acceptance in our own minds because we get tired of fighting it. Yes. And that's really important distinction and important word, uh, this idea of, of fighting or this idea of battle. Because what was common in the early church is that taking these stands or setting up these boundaries or confronting the cultural issues required a sacrifice. And the sacrifice wasn't suicide, it wasn't pacifism, it was pushing the battle forward. The martyr was seen as a soldier who is refusing to back down. The martyr of the first Christian centuries was a man who stood at the front lines like an infantryman and says, we refuse to give even one more inch to the Roman government or one more inch to the foreign pagan spiritual system. So the Christian martyr was one who was advancing the kingdom. And too often, Christians approach the battle of our culture or the battle for our society as though they anticipate they're going to lose. 
this is not really a martyr. If you give up and allow them to conquer you, you're not a martyr. <laughs> That's suicide. A martyr is the person who dies with their boots in the ground or the shoulders back and their head held up high. The martyr is the person who runs towards the roar of the lion, not the one who passively accepts that this is just how it is. And so Christians and non-Christians today have talked about this need for martyrdom, whether it's uh, the Black Lives people who find themselves to be a victim of every microaggression or the snowflake or the the right-wing person who says that every statue that's taken down is destroying their culture. Both of them are pretending to be martyrs but have no skin in the game. The true Christian today is called to put his money where his mouth is, to put his self at the front door, at the gates of the city, protecting Christendom against all encroachments. And so the true call of martyrdom is like the martyrdom that we see with St. Stephen, who he goes before the Sanhedrin, refuses to back down until they stone him. It's the martyrdom of St. Peter, who is warned, don't come back here and preach anymore, but yet keeps coming back into city after city until they crucify him. This is the call of the Christian, to find a gospel and the power of that gospel so compelling, so powerful, so invigorating, that it's not worth surrendering, that you're willing to lay down your life defending it, not simply pacifying the time until you're called into heaven. And one of the women in my online class pointed out something that I think she said her father taught her to remember that in the book of Revelation, among those who will not inherit the kingdom, those who will go into the lake of fire, before you have murderers and rapists, you have coward. And I like what you said, that the martyr was not a coward. The martyr was not someone who was afraid of death. If anything, the martyr was one who was afraid of offending God, something that was paramount, that God law needed to be honored, that Jesus was not only Savior, but Jesus was Lord. That's right. And we have a great, we have a great history, both in this country and uh, as Christians in Western culture, of standing up for what we believe in. And the powerful thing about that testimony is that when good Christians stood up to evil, no matter how powerful that evil was, the evil always loses. And so Christians today, rather than being overwhelmed by the evil of the world, should look to the witness of the third century Christians who overthrew Rome and established a Christian state, or the Christians of the Reformation who went against the entire Roman Catholic Church and reformed it, creating an entire industrialized world out of their stand on God's word alone. And so today, maybe we'll be counted as one of those times in which we reformed our system, fought back against the encroachments of humanism, of modern psychology, of all of these strange innovations and said, God's always had the answers. God's always had the victory. God's just needed his people to stand up, fill their rifles with the word of God and march forward. Now, by way of an analogy, back in, I think it was probably 1986, um, I had just had my second child, and I was interested in 
shedding some of that baby weight. And I enrolled in a karate studio program not too far from where I lived. And from that time till seven and a half years later, I achieved the second degree brown belt in Kempo Karate. And one of the things that they make you do when you go from one belt to another is demonstrate efficiency in terms of breaking certain holes, what would happen if you were attacked this way. As you get to the higher belts, you have people who have achieved black belt status and they come out and they attack you and you've got to defend yourself. Now, these people do use restraint, but they use qualified restraint because they're trying to train you be able to do it. And I remember I was in the middle of my test, my belt test, and I was in the middle of having all this take place. And I forgot to duck when a punch came at me and I got hit squarely in the face. Later resulted in a black eye of which I was very proud of. I finally had gotten a black eye. But you know the revelation I had, Steve? What's that? It's not so bad getting punched in the face. I could deal with it. I had to get my wits about me again because I had, this thing hadn't stopped. They were still coming at me, right? It was like this revelation. Oh, that's what it feels like to be punched. I, I'm not done. I, I can still do something in response. And I think until people are willing to actively engage with using the weapons of our warfare in terms of establishing the word of God, coming back, believer or non-believer alike and saying, no, that's wrong because the word of God says so, I think we'll realize that any attack that comes our way, kind of like that punch I got in the face. Okay, it hurts, but it's not that bad. Right. Well, and it's important that there is a sense in which your self-defense, of course, is protecting of you as an individual, but it's also part of the Lord's command where he says to lay down your life for another, which brings this idea of interposition or the idea that not only are we willing to, to take hits for the kingdom, but we're doing it not just for us, but for our families, the next generation, those around us. And we're ultimately doing it because it's what Christ is doing. He took a punch. He took death at the cross, but Christ will return. And when he returns, it's again, not as a pacifist, but as this conquering king of kings, lord of lords. You know, it says that he comes to make justice and to make war and to rule them with a a rod of iron. So when Christ returns, he's going to interpose or defend his people, should they be here to stand with him. And he does that even now for those who are willing to take a punch today, maybe on their ego, maybe on their reputation, But ultimately, it's not the respect of the world that we're fighting for, but the respect of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the first rule of self-defense is you don't ask for validation from the person who's attacking you. So why should we ask for the world to give us permission to defend ourselves? Instead, why don't we just do what Christ is doing and vindicate his people because we have the expectation that when he comes, he's going to do the same thing. So we really have to know what we're certain about. And I don't know that a lot of people have thought about that. What is something you're absolutely certain about that you would die for or that you'd be prepared to die for? And too many people 
like the weapons of the world. I forget who gave this analogy originally, but if somebody comes up to you and pulls a, pulls a gun on you and says, um, you know, give me your money, and you say, oh, I don't believe in guns. The person goes, oh, no, you don't believe in guns, and he puts it away. And so he goes, okay, he pulls out a knife. Okay, give me your money. Well, I don't believe in, in, in knives. Right? Aggression doesn't stop because the other person doesn't believe in it. So we have to be as certain about the weaponry that we've been given. It doesn't matter whether or not the person we're talking to believes it is true. It is true because the word of God says it's true. Our task becomes helping the other person see the blindness or the nearsightedness or the farsightedness of their vision. They're not seeing it correctly. If we're not sure we're seeing it correctly, then we're going to give in all the time. Amen. So there are a number of uh, works on the subject of self-defense and war. Can you recommend any? Well, the one that, that John Adams, you know, President John Adams, believed that was most important to understanding self-defense from an American Christian perspective was written uh, during the time of the French Huguenots, you know, when the, the Roman Catholics were persecuting the Calvinists in France. Uh, and that was a defense of liberty against tyrants. And it's written by somebody who calls himself Junius Brutus, but I, I'm pretty sure it's a pseudonym. But that book written in the 1570s, 1580s, really outlines the same thing you're talking about, our call to obey God versus man, and our responsibility of, as Christians to follow that command even unto death. Yes. And you know, this weekend we're going to be celebrating the 244th anniversary of the United States of America. And I would recommend that if people want a perspective on what is worth defending and what is worth standing up for, that they would uh, look into Dr. Rushdeni's books, This Independent Republic and the Nature of the American System, because you'll see that he never purports that the people who were among the founders were sinless people, because he came with the presupposition, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Men like George Washington and Patrick Henry knew who their creator and savior was. As a result, as imperfectly as they did what they did, God blessed them for their faithfulness. Amen. Well, and it's also important to go back to the Bible. If you want to read about God's army, open your Bible up to Joel chapter 2. You'll read about God's thundering army and how it's invading this world. So you either find yourself as a part of that army or receiving the brunt of that army's attack. So the question is, you know, should we defend ourselves? Of course. But we're not just defending ourselves. We're defending something much bigger. And that's what Christ died for, his bride and his kingdom. All right. Thank you all for listening. Um, I want to especially thank the couple of listeners who got in touch with us and told us the effect that our podcasts have had on their life and having them think through things that knew they had to think about. So if you would like to communicate to us, please do so through our email address, out of the question podcast gmail.com we'll talk to you next time 
Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.